0: Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 136. The Zulu army has fallen on the Voortrekkers along the Bloekrans and Bushmans rivers, close to where Escort and Ladysmith are to be found today, but right now it's February 17th, 1838. The tributaries of these rivers were renamed Groot and Klein Spreit because of the bloody events of that time. By the morning of the 17th, most of the families camped along these streams and rivers were dead. Within a few hours, the right horn and centre sections of the army had overrun the outlying voortrecker camps. Now the left horn prepared to assault Gert at lager. The Zulu army in the left flank initially approached the Fulun camp, and Gert and Karl Fulun. Khat Kombrink, Isak Poseidnoot, Meneer Skitters, and Stredum rode out to confront the attackers in an attempt to protect their families. Acting like plovers, the decoys split up in full view of the Zulu warriors, Chat and Itzak riding towards the Poseidnoot camp, and the others between Engelbrecht and Botman's camp. By now the Poseidnoots had been wiped out, and the two Fuluns realised that the Van Dijks and the Sneemans were also in danger, but could do nothing. The Zulu warriors spotted the two men in charge. They fired their muskets, then galloped out of range of the throwing spears. Each time they would dismount, fire, then remount. By doing so, they began to draw the warriors away from their wagons. They were fighting a tactical retreat, heading towards the main fuertrecker camp of Turinkop, hoping for some kind of miracle. While this was going on, the badly wounded Daniel Besednod, who had been stabbed four times the previous night, had overcome his injuries and was running along the Bloekrands River, warning the voortrekkers of imminent destruction. He had eventually stopped at Sebrand van Dijk's camp, where the women and children gathered and led them westwards like a bloodied Moses. This bedraggled group was joined by more refugees during their march, and before daybreak, they arrived at Hans Rutz's lager, which was alongside Petrus van Vieren and Gert Gier. The families had left their wagons, and the growing group of trekkers then continued their trudge towards Durenkorp. It was dawn when 196 voortrekkers, mainly women and children, staggered into view at the Retief and Chreling family lagers. Moments later, Hela Roberts galloped up on one horse, her two daughters on another, shouting that the men needed to come help fight the Zulu, who camp had been overrun, but there was nothing they could do. By midday, The rest of the fortrekkers who'd survived the bloody attacks of the previous night were staggering into Durrenkop, collapsing on their knees and thanking God for deliverance. Behind them, along the Natal rivers, Dingan's rivers, the Zulus continued their rampage, wiping out anyone they found and finishing off the wounded. They were looting anything of value as they went, and as I mentioned last episode, their discipline was beginning to slip. The left horn had rounded on Gert Meritz's lager, which was heavily defended unlike the other trekker camps, and he threw back their first attack. Many narratives of the future were being created about this defense, campfire stories of stoic action, including one where Maritz's ten-year-old son armed himself with a pistol and fired on the Zulu while his mother and other women carried ammunition back and forth while dressed in their dressing gowns. Just then, Sarul Salirs and five men galloped past the lager, heading towards the Barent camp, which was surrounded by remnants of the Zulu army, and holding out. Further west, down the Little Bushman's River, Gert Barans had drawn up his wagons in a half-moon shape and was finding it difficult to defend against waves of Zulu warriors. ''Let not a hair on your head show fear! Follow me!'' yelled Salirs and slammed into the surprised Zulu from behind. The fractured impi scattered, "'abandoning their looting. "'Some of the warriors sprinted into the Bushman's River, "'which was flooding and drowned, "'as Saliers and the five men fired constantly at the fleeing Zulu, "'the Boer muskets glowing and in danger of pre-igniting the gunpowder. "'To the east, Johannes van Rensburg's family "'and a few other small groups, "'there were fourteen men and twenty women and children, "'had managed to flee up the slopes of a nearby kopje, "'a kind of Sugarloaf hill shape. "'This was a good position,' The west side had a gorge gouged by a small, swift-flowing sprite. Salirs and his posse appeared out of the tree line, heading for the Zulu once again, driving off the attackers. It shows you just how the much-touted Amazulu discipline collapsed, that a group of six mounted Boers could chase off more than a hundred warriors. The bodies of both the Zulu and the Furtrikas were now scattered over an area of around 40 kilometres wide along these rivers. Chaos and carnage had ensued as the warriors carried out Dingana's order to pulverize and ethnically cleanse Natal of the Voortrekkers. Two kilometers away from the Van Derensburg mountain retreat, Willem Pretorius' wagons were under assault and an 18-year-old called Martinus Ustazen had managed to break through a large empire of 1,500 Zulu warriors carrying ammunition to the beleaguered Pretorius. The Voortrekkers were now fighting back, more men joined Selyris and the Zulu turned to face this new threat, but the accurate and repeated musket fire broke their resolve, and one by one the groups of warriors cracked and ran. It was now that the full extent of the horror of the last night's fighting became clear as these men rode east along the rivers, following the Klein and Grootmoort Spreit. Near the Grootmoort with three wagons which belonged to a group of Italian traders who had followed the trekkers and one of the Italian women, Tarsia Viglioni, had sprinted to her horse when she realised the Zulu were upon them. She grabbed a bag of coins as she went, so painstakingly earned over the years, and galloped from camp to camp, shouting warnings. It was fortunate for many who survived that she'd done so, Later, she was lauded as a hero for tending the wounded with her torn clothing. The fighting continued. It was early afternoon when the Impi began its full withdrawal, taking more than 25,000 head of cattle, sheep and goats back towards the upper Tugela. The Fortrekkers began a series of counter-attacks on the afternoon of the 17th of February, inflicting heavy casualties on the three sections of the Zulu army as it withdrew. The Amabuta were exhausted. And by the evening, a powerful thunderstorm crashed overhead. Lightning killed a few of the Zulu warriors. This was another omen from the skies. Daniel Besednerd was a broken man. He had lost his entire family, all his 7,000 sheep, his wagons, his oxen, everything. So it was a twist of fate that as he sat head in hands back at Dürrenkorp, he was approached by four orphans and he adopted them then and there. Johanna van der Merwe, who had been speared twenty times, lived, and Margarita Prinsloo, with about the same number of wounds, also lived to tell her tale. But Elizabeth de Beer, who had hid up a tree and whose blood had dripped on her pursuers, was not so lucky. She died of her dozens of stab wounds two days later. The Boers gathered back at Dornkopp, and revenge was on their lips. The sounds of weeping filled the air, and for the next few days... Outlying trekkers staggered towards this safe centre. The poor trekkers had lost more than 600 of their people. It was the biggest calamity to befall any of the settler parties anywhere in southern Africa ever. A significant event in the story. The place where the main massacres took place is marked today by the town of Viennin, place of weeping. 110 trekker men had died, including the 60 at Kwa Matawani. Fifty-six women had died, but shockingly it was the number of children wiped out, one hundred and eighty-five, that really was an abomination, and embittered the Boers. The Amazulu did not fight like the Amakosa, they realized too late. For centuries they'd lived alongside the Kosa, sometimes within their kraals, and never had they witnessed such cold-blooded killing of infants and women. There were two hundred and fifty colored okoye servants also speared to death by the Zulu. Everywhere gore splattered the landscape. The Boers had lost one tenth of their population, one sixth of their men. The Zulu had killed everyone, everything cats, dogs, even the chickens. However, in making a surprise attack, Dingon and his advisers had totally underestimated the Trekkers' fighting spirit and their grit, even when facing odds of thirty or forty to one. They had discovered that even when at a disadvantage, the Boers could provide a sting. They could defend themselves, and they fought like tigers. Zulu had lost at least 500 warriors, and this, despite attacking small groups of Boers, mainly women and children, at night, this fact was not lost on some of the Indunas as they trudged back to Dingaan. It was also part of the sentiment that had been included in the Izibongo, the praise poems of Dingaan is in phezulu Upiku finches are in collision in the air i am not certain which will get its wing broken the bird described as intankansinzi is either a yellow-shouldered wider finch or the bishop bird zulu historians aren't entirely sure which translators also refer to it as the king finch so the underlying implication was that it was the image of the king or kings struggling for supremacy. Dingana versus Shaka versus Mzilikazi versus the Boers, the Swazi, and later Mpande. All of these were unresolved when this couplet was conceived by the Izimbabwe. It was now that the Zulu made a fundamental strategic error. Instead of surrounding this beleaguered and weakened force of Boers, then destroying them over the next few days or weeks, They took their livestock and looted goods and merely withdrew. The Boers had not been dealt a fatal blow. The Zulu presumed that Ratif was the chief, and that the Ndunas or the other Boer leaders had got the message, like they had done so often in the past across Zulu land. And so they were continuing the tradition of Zulu raiding. It was what they had done against the Amaswazi and the Amandabeli. Once again they were treating the Boers as if they were another African enemy. But this enemy was not going to retreat and each survivor had taken Dingana's attacks very personally indeed. They were going to be unrelenting as they sought their form of justice. The Zulu had squandered the advantage of surprise. They'd left the Boers intact and more dangerous. These Boers had now sworn to avenge their fallen folk and Dingana had started a major war. Worse, he made the cardinal error of starting a war he could not finish. Yes, Dingana had battered the foot trekkers. Some did indeed leave Natal immediately and returned to the eastern cape or Trasaranya, but the few hundred left were now truly motivated to dispatch the Zulu king whatever the cost. The initiative switched to the Boers. The surviving trekkers set up a number of powerful loggers around Durnkop. They were fearful, that Patlokwa chief Sekoniela would come sweeping down the mountains and seek his own retribution for Ratif's treachery. The powerful chief on the upper Kaladin and the mountains above Durnkop had got wind of the trekkers' woes. As I'll explain in future episodes, Sekoniela, however, was having trouble of his own with Moshe so he wasn't predisposed to come down the mountain and teach the Boers a lesson, but they didn't know that. For the next few days, the four trekkers buried their dead, and dragged the Zulu bodies away from their camps to lie in the open, consumed by the wild animals. This was the usual Amazulu technique, but the foretrekkers were making their own point by leaving the bodies on the felt. Prerikant Rasmus Smith now proved to be a man of resilience after all the months of being rejected, and hardly slept for days after this attack. Most of the trekkers, who'd whispered behind his back, ceased their rumour-mongering. Cometh the hour, they say. Dozens of children had been orphaned and Gert Maritz was nominated to be chairman of an ad-hoc orphanage board and the process began of finding them families. Because few of the trekkers had wills, their surviving goods were gathered together and auctioned off, the funds being used to support the women and the surviving children. This propensity to support each other in their hour of need was another trait they developed on the felt. The trekkers may have been fractious politically but they were empathetic to each other socially. Zulu's scouts remained nearby, but the trekkers' own scouts had reported that the Zulu impi was marching back to Mgungul with the looted livestock. It was clear that the army was not going to return soon. So at dawn, on the eighteenth of February, a commander of fifty Trekker men cantered out of Dunkop under Maritz. their minds set on recapturing some of their treasured animals. Sauril Salias took the lead, and they tracked the spoor of the warriors and the herds all the way to the west bank of the Tugela River. Now it was Zulu taken by surprise. Many were shot, but most of the looted animals had already crossed the river. The sheep were on an island midstream and beyond the Boers' capacity to recapture. The sun was setting. The Boers could not risk crossing the Tugela, and some began crying tears of venom and frustration as they turned back to Durkup. Maritz then sent letters over the berg, to southern Orania, to the Moder River, the Rit, and the Caledon, He had received word back from the Boers there that at least five hundred men would come to the Fortreka's aid. The rains still fell. A wetter summer than any had ever experienced. The lagers were cesspools, and remember the trekkers had no toilets. Life under the canvas in this muddy, overpopulated set of lagers was terrible, worsened by the fact that the Boers had moved what flocks they had left into the loggers or very close nearby. The stench grew. Everything became hard to bear. People were helping others, but even in the common ground where suffering takes root, there's a limit. Food was running low, and soon disease broke out. Measles, in particular, began to kill some of the children who'd survived the Amazulu raid. Then a letter arrived from the Durban traders on 20th of February, to say that Pit Retief and his men had been killed. Amazingly, the voortrekkers had no word of his fate until now. There was no grain available. The Amazulu had seized everything, or burnt the crops, so the Boers could eat only wild meat, and that was beginning to run out. Meanwhile, in Cape Town, Major General George Napier had succeeded Benjamin Durban as English governor, Napier, of course, was another veteran of the peninsular war against Napoleon and had lost his right arm in battle. He'd walked into a crisis. He was extremely worried about the volatile eastern cape. The frontier was his first order of business. When the news reached him about the battles between the Amazulu and the Boers, he knew that it was a matter of time before the Trekkers set up a foothold in Natal and would embroil themselves in frontier matters. That could even destabilise the Cape's hinterland, he thought. Lord Glenelg, secretary for war in the colonies, agreed that it would be expedient to dispatch a small body of troops to Durban to deter the trekkers. And yet, these officials were still riven by uncertainty, because there had been a proviso that it must be the understanding that this action wouldn't mean the British intended to occupy Durban permanently. This matter was under discussion as events continued to unfold in Zululand. Despite the trekkers' appeals for help, it was quite a shock when virtually no reinforcements arrived, far short of the 500 they had been led to believe were on their way. Most of the trekkers west of the Drakensberg thought it prudent to avoid the Amazulu at all costs. Remarkably, only eight volunteers arrived initially. These included Piet Ace and his 14 year old son, Durki. They rode in on the 1st of March 1838 and Ace, who was incredibly charismatic, began rearranging the defences. Not everything he did was acceptable. Gertmaritz was still in charge, although Ace was another military man who naturally took control, took the lead. Then Hendrik Potgitter arrived a week later, accompanied by a band of men who said they'd come to fight. A commando was now on the offing. As they planned their mission, it became apparent that they'd only succeed if the Natal English settlers would open up a kind of second diversionary front. There weren't enough Boers to do this job. In Durban, the English traders were actually warming up to that idea. There was genuine sympathy. The killing of Thomas Halstead, the translator, had indeed been a mistake, Dingan feared, and these traders were determined to avenge his death as well. There was another reason to attack Dingan, and this was the treasure to be had in Zululand, all his cattle. As they machinated in Durban, Dingana's spies informed him of the new wind blowing in the port and he sent a warning that they had made himself his enemies and that he would come down some night in a more sudden way than he had attacked the Boers and drive all the people away. This further reinforced the English traders' belief that they had to get rid of Dingaan, if for no other reason than for self-preservation. So it was with some irony that the first to respond to the Zulu attack on the foretrekkers were the English, who rode out from Durban. On the 13th of March, John Kane, nicknamed Jana, by the Zulu, and John Stubbs led a small army northwards up the Mgeni River. Stubbs was the son of an 1820 settler and had been nominated to be one of the captains by Alexander Bigger, if you remember the tale of the Port Natal volunteers of the previous year. There were at least 1,000 members of the African clines. Some say it was more like 2,000, along with Khoisan retainers and eight traders in the force. Kane and Stubbs were aiming at the middle reaches of the Tugela and camped in the hills on the Mgeni River on the way. This was a few miles north of where Peter Marinsburg would be founded in a short while. Joining the mission was Henry Ogle, nicknamed Wartlaw, who had brought his own black troops along. As with things along the frontier, it wasn't a simple joining of forces because both Wartlow and Jana's men came to blows over who was in charge. Not the most dignified army then, marching to seek justice or treasure or both. Kane's group overcame Ogles after a punch-up, but Ogles' group said they'd avenge the humiliation after avenging the Boers' massacre. You can see how these conflicts within conflicts are disruptive when there's a major threat. Sometimes mini-me leaders confuse what is the real danger and end up throttling each other like hillbillies. So, this army of Natal, as it called itself, ended up attacking and destroying several large and prosperous Imizi belonging to Dingana on the southern banks of the Tugela, at Ntanjambili or Kranskop. The Great Spur of the Drakensberg thrusts out here and drops steeply into the Tugela River. And the Nkosi Nombanga Kaangitli who was Dingana's vassal, ruled this region. We are not sure of the date, but it was the last week of March. It so happened that Kane's decision to launch the attack was well-timed because Dingana had summoned his Amabuta warriors and cattle guards to Mgungunglovu, fearful of the foot who he was expecting to arrive at any day. His scouts watching the Boers were right about the motivation, wrong about the timing. Kane's soldiers killed about half a dozen Zulu and seized 500 women and children, as well as 4,000 head of cattle from Numbanga, Kaengidlius, Imizi. Two of Kane's men died in the raid, none from a Zulu spear. One was bitten by a snake, and the other Kane shot after the man tried to conceal cattle he had plundered. Most of the 4,000 cattle were owned by Dingana. Numbanga was looking after them in an the assistant called Ukusiza. The women and children were prized by the English traders. They could receive illubola by marrying the women off to local chiefs or themselves. Their labour was very important, and the children would grow into various roles as servants in the port town. It was a gratuitously self-serving so-called army that marched back into Durban on April 2nd, boasting of the easy plunder, but most knew that Dingana would extract extreme retribution. Back at Derncorp, a little earlier, the Trickers had sent out a small patrol on a mission to find out whether the English were prepared to help in the coming battles against Dingon. Geert Maritz dispatched the patrol on the 18th of March. Coincidentally, an English party was heading towards Durenkop from Durban, and these two met en route. The English confirmed what they called the Great Army of Natal was going to march to the Tegela and teach Dingon a lesson. Maritz responded by moving all the wagons to Durinkorp to reinforce his position, but it was too soon for him to attack Umgunglova himself. Three powerful Boer lagers were built, Maritz on the Bushman's River, Commandant Portheaters nearby, and another under Landmann and Fenter. A fourth was then constructed near the source of the Blokans River by Piet Ace, which he christened Morder Lager. It was still raining incessantly, thus the name Moda Lager Mud Lager, Moritz appointed Hans de Lange as Fech commandant and Rudolf Greling and Henrik Potthieter as his lieutenants. They discussed plans for a counter-attack, but the discussions didn't go too smoothly. The followers of the rival voortrecker leaders stirred up old resentments. You'd think, after facing the chaos and the danger of the last few weeks, that they'd let bygones be bygones to turn and face the real threat together, but no. Who was going to lead the force against Dingan? Moritz still thought of himself as commander-in-chief, but he was growing weak from an illness they called dropsy back in the day, what we know as congestive heart failure. Neither Port nor Ace would serve under him. They also would not serve under each other. On the 28th of March, as the great army of Natal marched back to Durban with its loot, a vote was taken at the Fech Lager to decide who would lead the Boer army against Dingon. Pete Ace cracked the nod but his verbal contract was dotted with quite a bit of fine print. Ace would have to consult with the others, including Portkita, who couldn't stand Ace. So Ace appointed Lucas Meyer as his deputy because a trekker by the name of Peter Erasmus refused. Another message was then sent to Durban. Would the English traders work with the Boers and conduct their own attack for a second time? On this occasion, coordinate their moves with the Boers. The English said they would. But this was going to be a fractious affair inside both sets of soldiers, inside the Boer Commando and inside the so called Grand Army of Natal. Porquito, you see, still had his eye mainly on the Highfelt. He had merely pitched up to fight as a kind of mercenary in Natal and refused to place his men under anyone else's command. He was an independent ally, not to be ordered around by Pete Ace. Ace was forced to publicly accept that Porquito was his equal. They had had similar arrangements when they had overcome Mzilikazi Kumalo and his Amandabeli at Egabeni after all. That had worked out well enough. This was so. But that was a successful mission which obscured the weakness in command, where there had been no clear strategic lead, no clear vision or tactic, no proper understanding of the dangers posed by the territory they were now going to enter. The Egabeni Lark had been an attack on villages which had been taken totally by surprise. The Boers were now going into a different landscape, pitted by rocky mountainous ravines filled with broken ground, ideal for men on foot, not so good for horses, not a place to rush into, which was what Ace and his men were going to do. It was going to be an extremely painful lesson, and for many, in what became known as Fluch Fluchkommando the flight commando, their last. Dinganas and dunas were skilled soldiers, and more so because they had the advantage of knowing every rock, every tree, every ravine of their territory, and they were going to lead the willing trekkers to their doom in the scrub of the Mfulosi badlands. What happened next is for next episode. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the inclination. It helps increase the visibility of the series. Don't forget to head off to the website desmondlatham.blog if you want to contact me, or through X. At Des Latham. Until next, goodbye.